We are continuing this morning in the book of 1 Peter, so you can turn to the book of Hosea. I'm going to repeat something that we've tried to stress many times through the years, which is that you have to pay attention to context in the Bible. Context, context, context. That doesn't just mean the verses around the passage that you're reading, but it means the entire context of the whole of the Bible. To properly be a Bible teacher, I have to also make sure to show you these connections between what the Bible says and what the Bible says, because the Bible is its own best interpreter of itself. And if you ignore or if you neglect the things that the Bible says in the Old Testament, you'll get confused about the things that are said in the New Testament. Because you have to remember, never forget, that the writers of the New Testament were basing their theology on the Old Testament, which is why they all quote scripture so frequently and use scripture as the basis of their authority. They keep saying, because scripture says, and when they say that, then they're saying what the Old Testament says is. So they give a great deal of weight and credibility to the Old Testament. And we do ourselves a disservice, and we end up dishonoring the word of God when we just look at the New Testament without considering its Old Testament background. And so we're going to see Peter this morning in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. We're going to see him quote several things from the Old Testament. And they are promises that are specifically given to national Israel. And then Peter is going to find the fulfillment of those promises in the believers that he's writing to. And here's where the controversy erupts. If you believe that Peter is writing to the church at large, Jews and Gentiles alike, then you're going to come away with some kind of theological mishmash where you say, well, God said these promises to Israel, but Peter says they're being fulfilled in the church. And now Gentiles must in some way be Israel because the promises that were made to Israel are being fulfilled in the Gentiles. Except that if you pay attention to what Peter actually said, he started this epistle by saying he was writing to Jews, scattered Jews, and then knowing that Christ is the surety, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen, Knowing that Christ is the fulfillment of all those promises of God in the Old Testament, Peter can then say to Jews who have come to Christ, those promises that were made in the Old Testament to Israel are satisfied, are fulfilled in you. But he never says these promises that were made by God to Israel are now being fulfilled in Gentiles. In fact, he's even going to go so far as after having stated these promises, he's going to say to the Jews he's writing to, watch your behavior out there among the Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles show up. The Gentiles are in the context, but they're in the context of, 
those people over there. When you're scattered among the Gentiles, watch your behavior. But as far as you, now that you believe in Christ, now that you have come to Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises, those promises that God made specifically to your people group are being fulfilled in you because you are part of that people group. Does that make sense? Yes. Am I alone up here? No. Well, technically, yes. I, mean, I, I kind of am. Now, the reason that we're going to start in Hosea this morning is because Peter is going to bring up a passage from Hosea, and this is the primary example of what I'm trying to get at this morning, that these are promises made specifically to Israelites, that Peter is going to say, these promises are now fulfilled in you. And if he means believing Israelites, well, that makes sense. But if he's saying in you, and he means the church at large, including Gentiles, well, then the Bible kind of is a jump ball, and you can find any promises in the Old Testament that are made specifically to Israel, and then you can just kind of apply them willy-nilly to the Gentiles, and your theology just becomes, well, covenantalism, becomes the idea that the church is the Israel of the New Testament, and that Israel is the church of the Old Testament, and you don't make the distinction between what people group God is talking to and who he's making these promises to. So we have taught through the book of Hosea in the past, and I can't just start by assuming that you all know it and remember it. And so we're going to start by reading some Hosea this morning, because not only does Peter use that as an example, but Paul also uses it as an example in Romans 9. And both of them, we're going to see, apply it to Israelites. And so consistently then, we find God making promises to Israel. Christ comes. He's the fulfillment of the promises. And the New Testament writers writing to and about Israel say these Old Testament promises are fulfilled now through Christ in you. And that's really, really specific. You have to be that specific with it. You have to be that careful with it. You have to be that cautious with it because it is, after all, the word of God. So you want to pay attention and get it right so that you don't end up with theological concepts and ideas and machinations that the Bible simply doesn't say anywhere. It's very, very common to hear people say the church is now Israel. The problem is there's no New Testament author who says that. You can't find it anywhere in the Bible where any New Testament author takes the time to tell you, oh yeah, the word Israel now has a new definition. And that new definition includes Gentiles. That doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible. And yet it's a very common, very popular theology causing me to ask the question, why? Why would you support a theology that you simply can't find said anywhere in the Bible? And the reason that people say it is because they believe it's implied in the Bible and their implications are drawn from passages like we're going to look at this morning. And that's why I'm driving this point this morning to prepare us for... 1 Peter chapter 2, where he's going to find all these Old Testament promises made to Israel, and he's going to say they're fulfilled in you. And he's speaking to Israelites when he says it. Have we got all that? Yes. yes. Am I still alone up here? Yes. No. Okay, you're with me. 
Someone's with me. Good. Are you all in the book of Hosea? Yes. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So in verse 2, we see that God is drawing a direct parallel between what he's telling Hosea to do and the land of Israel and the people of Israel. So his relationship with his wife and the children and the names he's going to give the children is a direct reflection of what's happening in Israel at that point. God did not just arbitrarily say to his prophet, go take a wife of harlotry. He said, go and take a wife of harlotry so that I can demonstrate that this land is full of flagrant harlotry and has abandoned God. So he went, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Okay, so what does that tell you? God is now speaking prophetically through the names that he's giving to the children. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So that's why you're going to name the first child Jezreel. Then she conceived again, and she gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. What a tough name to give a kid. I'm going to name you No Mercy. Name her Lo Ruhama, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God. And I will not deliver them by bow or sword or battle or horsemen or horses. And when she had weaned Lo-Rohama, she conceived and she gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Okay, so now no mercy and not my people. And these are prophetic names that God is giving to Israel. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet... The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land, and great will be the day of Jezreel. So these negative names that God has assigned to these three children speak prophetically of God's punishment of Israel, and then he promises them, once you are not my people, 
once I am not merciful to you, then you're going to go to a place where you are known as not my people. And in that place where you are not my people, there you're going to be called the sons of the living God. Because that's what I'm going to do for you. Okay, so now turn to 1 Peter. Because Peter is going to say that exact thing to the Israelites he is writing to. He is going to find the satisfaction of Hosea in the fact that there are people of Israel who have accepted Christ, who are living by the Spirit of God, and therefore, though they are scattered, though they are dispersed, though they are known as not my people, in that place, they're going to be called the sons of the living God because the living God has now brought them to Christ. So Peter finds the satisfaction in that. Now, I don't think that eliminates the reality of the rest of the prophecy. In fact, I think that establishes the rest of the prophecy. The very fact that there are Israelites who used to be not my people who are now the sons of the living God means the rest of it, which is that Israel and Judah are going to be joined together and have one leader over them. and They're going to have one king. That all has to happen, too especially because the first part of the prophecy happened, which means that the second half is a surefire guarantee, not only guaranteed because it's the word of a God who simply doesn't change, who is almighty and sovereign and can do whatever he wants and has already told us, this is what I want to do, therefore I'm going to do it, but he's also already done part of it, therefore we can rest assured that he's going to do the rest of it. And so Peter, who has a great mind for prophecy, takes the time to say, look, these prophecies are coming true. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1. We'll go along and then we'll bump into it. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it, by the word of God, you may grow in respect to salvation. Not that you're going to grow to be more saved, but that you're going to grow in your knowledge of the salvation that's been given to you. The more you study the word of God, the more you listen to the word of God, the more you're going to grow in your knowledge of the salvation that God has given you. If you have tasted, ingested the kindness of the Lord. That's where we stopped last week. Verse 4 is the new material. And coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, those are two jam-packed verses. So let's see if we can pull them apart a little bit. First off, we're coming to him. How much emphasis can I place on this? We're coming to him. We're not coming to knowledge about him. We're not coming to doctrinal statements about him. We're not coming to propositions about him. In the end, what we're coming to is him. 
He's the one who saves. He's the one who did the work. He's the one that died and resurrected again. And we are coming to him. But he is the living Savior. Peter has already made reference to the fact that we are drawn with a living hope. And that we're drawn by the living word. And now he talks about a living stone, which seems counterintuitive. Because we have a parking lot with a lot of stones in it. Lots of rocks out there. And not a one of them is alive. Not a one of them is going to stand up and do anything. You would not ask a rock for advice. Because stones don't live. That's just something fundamental. We know that stones don't live. And yet Peter has said that he is a living stone. And he's about to say that he's the stone that the whole rest of the congregation, the assembly of God is built on that stone. So he's using masonry language and the building up of the temple of God in referring to us and him as stones. But we're not just dead stones. We're alive and living spirit-filled stones through whom God is building this temple that is now the body of Christ. This is beautiful, beautiful language because not only are we drawn to the living stone, but then Peter tells us the natural attitude of human beings toward that living stone. He is rejected by men, and yet he is choice and precious. Some of your translations will say elect in the sight of God. What does that tell you about natural men? It tells you that natural men are naturally against the very thing they should be completely for. The one thing that God has said is choice and precious. Human beings say, nah, I don't care about it. Not so much. I don't need it. No thanks. I'm good. I'm fine, self-made man. I reject that. And yet God has chosen Christ to set up Christ at his right hand so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the plan of God. He has made Christ the choice and elect one, the ever-living one, the one that was dead and is alive again and ever lives to make intercession for us, ever seated at the right hand of God. That's what you should be in favor of. Amen. That one. You should be all about that one. And yet human beings in their sin, in their ego, in their depravity, reject that. And it was true then, and it's true now. And John certainly tells us he came to his own, and his own received him not. And so he was rejected by men all the way to the crucifixion. Though he was rejected by men, he is still choice and precious in the sight of God. And because he's choice and precious in the sight of God, and because he's ever living, we who are in him and he's in us are also living stones. And because God has all these living stones now at his disposal, he is building up what Peter is about to call the holy priesthood. Now let's talk about what a priest did for just a moment. Because priests had very specific jobs. Priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. And they were given specific jobs. 
and the course of their duties all had to do with the worship and the praise of God, but the ultimate thing that a priest did was sacrifice. Non-stop, constant, blood flowing to God. If you wanted to bring a sacrifice to God, if you were aware that you had sinned in some way and you wanted to make restitution before God, or if you wanted to bring a thanksgiving offering to God, if you wanted to approach God with your sacrifice, you couldn't go directly to God. You had to go to a priest and the priest had to go and sacrifice your sacrifice for you. So you weren't allowed, because you're not a priest, you're not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies because you're not the high priest. And you're not allowed to go into the tabernacle in the wilderness because you're not a Levite and you're not a priest. And in fact, if you're not a priest, you had to stand afar off and watch as the priests did the necessary things inside the tabernacle. So human beings, just regular everyday Israelites, Bob the Israelite gets up in the morning. Bob is a good Israelite name. He gets up in the morning and he wants to bring sacrifices to God. He can't get directly to God. He has to stand away and let the priests who have been consecrated by God do the sacrificing to God. Now Peter is saying something directly opposite, brand new, part of the new covenant versus the old covenant. He's now saying you don't need a Levite. You don't need a priest. Christ is your high priest, and you, as living stones, are now a holy priesthood, holy, set apart, separated from the rest of the world, and because you are now the priesthood, you can bring your sacrifices directly to God, and he calls them spiritual and acceptable sacrifices that we now get to bring to God. You can go pray to God. You can get before God on your face. You can worship God. You can bring sacrifices to God. You can lay your life down before God, and you don't need any other intercessor than Christ your high priest. You have direct access to God. You have the ability to tell God what your worries, what your concerns are. You can pray for your needs. You can pray for your wants. You now have ready access to the Father God, which you didn't have before. So Peter is saying, now that the living stone has made you living stones, he's building you up into this holy priesthood. So you don't need a Catholic priest. You're a priest. You don't need a Lutheran priest. You're a priest. You don't need any other intercessor between you and God. You get to go to God directly because you're a priest according to this. So Peter says, and coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I said, as I applied that verse, I said, we now have access to God, because that's certainly true. Through Christ, through the new covenant, we have direct access to God. And so I even said, we don't need priests. 
But I want to really concentrate this morning again on the context that Peter is writing to a particular people group. He is writing to Israelites. And so Israelites who are familiar with the priesthood, who are familiar with the high priests and the Levites, they would read that you are now a holy priesthood and it would be shocking to them especially if they're from the tribe of Dan or the tribe of Naphtali or any other tribe that is not part of the priesthood, and then they're told you are of the priesthood? That would be shocking to them. But they're part of the priesthood because of the living stone. For this is contained in Scripture. Now Peter's going to prove his point about the living stone being rejected by men. He says, this is written in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Tom, if you would, look up Isaiah 28, 16 for us, because that's where you're going to find that quote. Now, while he's looking that up, let me talk a little bit about Bible translation for a moment. Uh, The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but then just before Christ came onto the planet, there was the translation that we know as the Septuagint. It is the Old Testament written in Greek. And so the Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. By the time the New Testament authors start writing, they are mostly reading and quoting from the Septuagint, which means they're writing from a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. So when we read our New Testament, it is an English translation of a Greek translation of the original Hebrew. But our Old Testament is an English translation of the original Hebrew. And so... Sometimes when you see Old Testament quotes and you compare them to New Testament quotes, you'll notice that the language is a bit different or some of the word choices are a little bit different. That's why. Because by the time those Old Testament quotes have gotten to us, it's gone through two translations. Have you ever gotten on like Google Translator online and written some anything in English and then had it translated to like Japanese and then translate it back to English, it won't say what you originally said. It'll say something else because in the process of translating to another language, they have to take it into the particular idioms of that language. And then it's now written in that original language and translated into English, and it goes through the same idiomatic changes. And so that's what's happened between our Old and our New Testament. So I just want to point that out before Tom reads, because you're going to see some quotes that are similar to what we're seeing in the New Testament. It's simply because of the way that it was translated and handed down to us. Yes, ma'am. I know that's a really popular argument, people saying that, well, it's been translated so many times, how can we know what it originally said? And you said, you know, if you put something in the translation, it can say something different. Even though it's been translated, is it, it's still the same idea, right? I mean, it's still... Absolutely. And the reason we know that is there are some folks who say, I'm stuck on one translation. I'm King James only. Now that the King James is translated, that's the word of God. We don't need anything other than that. Meaning everybody before 1611 didn't apparently have the word of God. 
I like the idea of several translations. I like comparing the different translations because the original Greek exists. We don't have any of the original, original documents, but we have so many copies of the New Testament dating back to so early that we have copies of the New Testament that go back to within a generation of the time that they were originally written. So because we have all these copies, and when I say all these, I'm talking like 5,000 plus copies of the New Testament, we can compare one to another, figure out where the textual variants are, and see by the propensity of what people write and what people copy, we can kind of find all those mistakes or those inaccuracies. So we have a very, very good sense of what the New Testament originally said. And the various translations exist because it's trying, once again, to bring that ancient language into our modern idiom, into our modern way of understanding and speaking. And so I like the various translations because they help us understand what the Greek was getting at. The Old Testament was preserved through the fact that God chose a particular people and gave them prophets who wrote things down, and then they preserved them. In fact, they kept the books of the law and then the books of the prophets. They stored them up with the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, they preserved those words over thousands of years. And then recently, when the Qumran caves were discovered, I'm sorry, you clicked that part of my brain. When, when the Qumran caves were discovered, there were all these documents, Old Testament documents, dating back to just before the time of Christ, and we're able to go back and look at those, and they say the same thing our Bibles say today. So it's not so much that there's so many translations, it's that we have access. It's that we have access to, to really ancient versions, copies, and they say the same thing. It would be problematic if the oldest versions of the Bible that we have disagreed with each other, if they contradicted each other. That would be really problematic. But they don't. There are textual variants where somebody transposed a word or didn't write a letter or something like that so that there's something missing, but we know it's missing because we have all these other copies where it's included. Or we can see where something was added because we have all these other copies that don't have that. And so this was added, whether by mistake or on purpose, by the particular copyist. We have more attestation to the validity of the New Testament in particular and the Old Testament than any other book that exists on the planet in terms of how many copies and how early the copies exist from. And so while people don't argue about whether Plato is accurate, there are hundreds and sometimes thousands of years that exist between the time that these philosophers actually lived and the most ancient copy we have of what they said. Copies could have changed things or rewritten things or whatever. We have no way of knowing, and yet people, by and large, believe that what they're holding in Plato's Republic is what Plato wrote. You get my point? You get the evidence? The evidence is vast for the Bible, and yet people will, rather than read the Bible and trust the Bible, will say silly things like, well, it's been through so many men's hands, it's been translated so many times that we have no idea what the original document said. Yes, we do. So there's my long answer to your short question. That's fantastic. I want to differentiate between the idea of, well, it's been translated. Right. Based on what we actually have. So that was perfect. 
you know what? People who don't want to read their Bible and don't want to accept the living stone, those people will find an excuse. They'll find one somewhere, and that's just a convenient excuse. So, I have no idea where we were. Oh, Tom's about to read. That's where we were. Tom's about to read, and he's going to read from Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So essentially what God is getting at is, I am laying a stone in Zion, and he even calls it a cornerstone. That's an architectural term. If you're going to build a building, you got to lay the first stone. And usually that stone is, this is the corner we're building out from here. So Christ is the foundation stone on which the whole rest of the Christian faith is built. So Peter picks that up and says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. So this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, and at this point he's going to quote from Psalm 118.22. You want to look that up real quick? Who wants to look that up? Somebody look that up. Todd said he's going to look it up. I saw his hand go up. He's now going to quote the opposite side of it. He is a precious stone. He is a choice stone to those who believe. This precious value then is for you who believe. But to those who don't believe on Christ, here's what David wrote prophetically about that stone. Psalm 118, 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And on top of that, somebody look up Isaiah 8, 14. Isaiah 8, 14. I see people punching it into their phones. That always <laughs> throws me off. I think, really, you're texting now? <laughs> At this key moment? Oh, you're looking up the verse. I'm sorry. Have you got Isaiah 8, 14? Okay, read it nice and loud. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So now Peter is saying, and notice, by the way, that that quote from Isaiah says that he's going to be a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling for the people of Israel. So he's still talking about within the context of the people of Israel, who are the people that he's writing to, he's saying to those of you who believe, he is precious. But to those of you who don't believe, nevertheless, God made him the stone that the builders rejected, which means God prophesied that you weren't going to believe him. God prophesied that you were going to reject him. God knew that he had to be crucified, so there had to be people who hated him enough to crucify him, and therefore God in his sovereignty made sure that there were people who rejected him by prophesying that people are going to reject him. So for those of you who don't believe, he is the stone that the builders rejected, but now he's become the very chief cornerstone. He is the foundation of everything God is building here on the planet. And, verse 8, he is a stone of stumbling, and he is a rock of offense. You want to test that one? That's easy to test. Go say it to people. 
Go say the name Jesus. Bring up Jesus in a conversation as somebody you worship, somebody you trust with your entire eternity, somebody that you're willing to live and die for. People get real offended. People are like, what are you talking about? That's our crutch. You don't need that. What are you? You're so weak-minded. Why would you believe such a thing? Look at me. I'm a man. I don't need such things. I... No, he's a rock of offense, and he's a stone of stumbling. People trip over him and stumble because God appointed them to that. Here, Peter's going to say that. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this, this disobedience to the word, they were also appointed. There's absolute sovereignty. I heard, I heard a debate this week. I'm not going to go into any great depth about it except to say that it was a debate between an atheist and a theist. <laughs> atheist and a atheist. A believer and an unbeliever. I was surprised that the believer did not say at some point, and really there were several opportunities where I really thought, there, you've got him. He's cornered. Go. He should have simply said, God said you'd be like this. You're proving God's sovereignty. The very fact that you don't believe and that you're disobedient proves that the Bible is true because the Bible said you'd be like that and you are appointed to be like this. Of course you don't believe. It's appointed by an absolutely sovereign God that you wouldn't believe, and now you don't. Ta-da! God's right. Well, that's what Peter's getting at here, is that they stumble because they are disobedient to the word of God, and to this, they were also appointed. Now, I said a moment ago that God, in his sovereignty, in his prophetic plan, in his for knowledge and in his omnipotent ability to make things come out exactly the way he said they were going to come out, he knew that his son had to die because Christ is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so in order for him to be slain and to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament about his death, there had to be people on the planet who would be so opposed to Christ that they would hate him and kill him. So, yes, indeed, God appointed them to the very thing they did. This is not new to Peter. This is something that you find all the way back in the book of Acts, that Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles were all gathered together to do whatever God's hand had determined to be done because God is in absolute control of these events. In other words, if you want to apply it to yourself, apply it this way. Do you believe today? That's because God appointed you to believe today. That's because before the foundation of the world, before God did anything, he wrote names down in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he made sure that those people kept their appointment. And when you get to heaven, you stand before God, and the books are open, and your name is found in the book. Essentially, you can say, I have an appointment. Of course I'm here. I always make my appointments on time. 
And he's going to recognize that he gets all the glory. You're going to recognize that he gets all the glory. He gets all the praise because it's going to come out exactly as he appointed it. And those people who stumbled at Christ were appointed to stumble at Christ because that's the way it had to be. And he prophesied it. And he said it in his word. And that's what Peter points out. It's already in the word of God that you were going to be exactly like you are. And I think that's a good answer to people. I think, yeah, you know what? The word of God says you're going to be like that. Oh, you're like that? Yep, Bible's true. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And notice, by the way, he just quoted the word over and over again to show that the word was accurate and true. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this they are also appointed. I kept leaving out the word that is uh, in italics in the NASB. In the NASB, verse 8, they add the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. I don't see any place in the context right here where the concept of doom is brought up. Instead, what's brought up is their disobedience. And so I prefer the idea, the translation, the understanding that what Peter is saying is to this disobedience they were also appointed. For those of you who are reading along closely. But you are. Okay, somebody look up Exodus 19.5. Don't all do it at once. Somebody look up Exodus 19.5. Okay, do it all at once. Somebody look up Exodus 19.5. Hold on to it. But you are a chosen race. Okay, that was a promise that was made to Israel. You are a chosen race. May I ask a quick question? In the Bible, is the church ever referred to as a race of people? No, in fact... The description of the church is it's people of every kindred, trung, every kindred tribe, tongue, and nation. Or trung, either one, that's a good word. It's just a combination of tribe and tongue. Every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. The church is not identified as a race, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. What does that mean? A priesthood of kings. You are kingly priests. You are a holy nation. Again, the church is never referred to as a nation. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, which is why I keep identifying holiness as separation, separated to God for his exclusive use and no longer for any earthly or carnal use. You are God's own possession that you may proclaim This is why all these things are true of you, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason he has made you a royal priesthood and a chosen nation and a holy nation and a people for God's own possession is so that you will end up proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory. It ultimately redounds back to God. Okay, so where did he get that? Well, this is Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Keep reading. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, 
These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are promises that were given to Israel all the way back at Sinai, back when they were given the law. If you will keep the covenant I'm laying in front of you, then you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and a separate people if you keep the covenant. Did they do it? No. No. So what did God do? New covenant. Having established the new covenant, which Jeremiah and Hebrews 8 both say is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it's very specific language, having established a new covenant, Peter can now say, you know those promises back there that were given to you specifically? You people group, you Israelites, remember those promises about being a holy nation? Remember how you were called a royal priesthood? Well, I'm here to tell you because of the new covenant and because of the fullness of our Savior and because all the promises of God in him are yes and amen, I can now say you believing Jews are in fact a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are the people of God. You now have been separated out as a holy people. You see what he's doing? You see what Peter's getting at? For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He finds the satisfaction of the Hosea prophecies in the fact that believing Jews had come to Christ and they now, though scattered, Though they are in the very place where they're called, not my people, they are now being called the people of God. For you once were not a people, but you now are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he is doing the same consistent thing with every one of these Old Testament quotes. He's taking these Old Testament promises. He's saying that in Christ they are fulfilled, yea and amen, and they are now satisfied. They have now come to their completion in the very people group that God originally made the promise to. So there's no confusion in the Bible. There's no confusion about how church of Gentiles is now somehow Israel. And it doesn't exist in the Bible if you just let the Bible say what it says. And what it says is God is really consistent when he makes promises to a people. He keeps those promises to those people. And that's how you want God to be. Because if God has made promises to you, You want him to fulfill them in you. It's not enough for God to make promises to Devante and then satisfy them in Todd. Is that going to make Devante feel any better? Is Devante going to say, well, at least you kept your word. You know, it wasn't me. I was hoping you were going to save me, but okay, I guess it's hell forever for me because you made me promises, but you didn't keep them. But you did kind of keep them because you kept them in Todd. So you kind of kept them. No, God makes promises to specific people and he keeps those promises to specific people and that is what the Bible says and that's certainly what Peter is getting at. And if you don't take the time to understand who's writing, who he's writing to, and then what he's saying, you're going to end up confused every single time. Peter, we've said it over and over again, is the apostle to the circumcision. Peter identifies that people group in his introduction to this very letter only a chapter ago. 
so why is there any confusion I read a commentary just this morning that concluded that because Peter was writing to believers everywhere that now Christians are a royal priesthood this morning I read that over my eggs while I was eating my breakfast I read that and I thought why is this even a commentary why does this exist why would anybody read this this is only leading to more and more confusion okay I'm ranting but let me say the Bible is trustworthy trust it let it say what it says and then bring your understanding of God in league with what the Bible says because Peter has already told us that as we continue tasting the Lord like newborn babes as we're longing for the milk of the word in that we grow in respect to our salvation but that growth stops if you don't let the Bible say what it says so let the Bible speak once you were not a people but now you are the people of God you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy beloved I urge you as aliens and strangers okay what does he mean by that why does he call them aliens and strangers is he writing to the church at large and we are aliens and strangers in this world is that what he's getting at this world is not my home I'm just a passing through is that the song he was supporting when he uses the word aliens and strangers he's talking about the diaspora the fact that they are scattered out of their homeland among the Gentiles so he says to them beloved I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles there's the Gentiles I've already explained to you that these prophecies made to Israel are now being fulfilled in you through Christ but now let that be reflected in the way you behave yourself out there among the Gentiles among whom you are scattered keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers very popular by the way still very popular you can go on the internet just about any day and you can find people saying terrible things about the Jews not things that are true but just because they generally hate the Jews hate the Jews without a cause the same way they hated Christ without a cause and so the Jews are oftentimes slandered by the Gentiles Paul talks about it Peter talks about it so what's the answer keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them they may glorify God the NASB closes in the day of your visitation glorify God in the day of your visitation I don't like that translation because it is the word episcope from which we get the word episcopal episcopalian do you know what the episcope is what the episcope means it means the office of an overseer Paul uses it oftentimes to refer to the people who are leading the church and so it also has that idea of oversight or overseeing I want you to recognize that meaning of the word because what Peter is saying is 
glorify God not only in the day of your scattering and visitation, but the very fact that you are the people of God and you are among the unbelieving Gentiles, you are like their overseers. You are to be of such good report and such good behavior that you act like a preservative among them so that they see your good works and glorify God as a result. You are the episcopate. That's really interesting to me because that means that God not only drove them out, that God is not only recognizing the fact that they are the diaspora being scattered among the Gentiles and that one day he's going to gather them back, but he's also saying that while he has done that, they are the preserving force of the people of God that are scattered out there among the Gentiles. Cool, huh? That's a really sovereign God who knows what he's doing. So the next time you see a scattered Israelite, a scattered Jew, remember that God has brought them there on purpose because he's working out his plan. He's actually promised them nonstop blessings, not just a land, but an expansion of the land, that Christ himself is going to be their king and that God is going to pour out blessings on them and that the blessings are going to flow to the Gentile nations having flowed through Israel. So we have to keep that perspective. We have to keep remembering that. The Bible, by and large, by and large, is about Israel. Don't forget that. And if you've been brought, adopted into the family, if you by grace have been brought into the covenants of God and through the New Testament now God is saving you too, that's wonderful and that's great. But don't allow, as Paul argues in Romans 11, don't allow the fact that God has brought you in to make you start boasting against the people that, a God, that God originally brought in. They're still his people. They continue to be his people. You have been brought in through grace, through adoption. Thank God for it. They have promises. And those promises are still good. And that's what Peter argued in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Got it? Got it. Now am I alone up here? No. <laughs> no, John's going to come along and tell everybody that the names on the gates of the city are the tribes of Oh, that, that language keeps coming up. The, the gates on the New Jerusalem are the 12 tribes of Israel, the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. I mean, you just, you can't say that God has forgotten about Israel. He's just, the language is too consistent. So, Mia, come here. Come stand right here. Right there. See her pink and my pink? We're very pink. Okay, now. Am I alone up here? No. That's what I want to hear. Go sit down. Okay. <laughs> Any more questions? Any additions? Yes, sir. I hate to do this, but um, I know there's a separation between Jews and Gentiles, but as I read something like in Ephesians 2.13 where it says we're, we were excluded from the citizenship and the promises, and Christ brought the two groups into one, shouldn't we all have the same promises then? All believers do have the same promise of eternal life. But you as a, as a member of the Gentiles don't have historic promises from God. The Davidic covenant, for instance. Mm -hmm. 
the Davidic covenant doesn't have any conditions attached to it. It has to come true. Christ has to be king in Jerusalem, and he has to rule over Israel. God has to gather the Israelites and the Jews together. We read it today from Hosea. So Gentiles don't have that history of promises from God. Yes, we all have the same promises concerning salvation and concerning Christ as our Savior, absolutely. But there are also earthly, time-bound promises that belong to those people specifically, and I'm arguing that you can't erase those promises without doing damage to the Word of God. Does that make sense? Right. I guess I'm not trying to exclude them, per se, but I guess for me it's hard to... The distinction... There's too, there's too many, I guess, I guess, verses that point to a unity in Christ that when you divide it for me... Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. There are lots of verses that talk about our unity in Christ. There's neither Jew or Gentile, free or bond, male or female, in Christ, absolutely. But when Peter is writing, and he has identified the people group he's writing to, do you think he had in mind, was he trying to tell us, based on what he actually said, was he trying to tell us, that Gentiles are now the fulfillment of those promises that were made to Israel. Is that Peter's point? Is that what Peter said? Is it what he wrote? It shouldn't be something you have to think about at all. You should be able to look at the words on the page and say, is he saying that? I would say no. I would say I think he's talking to believers who are Jewish. But for me, it's just, I just see believers, not whether we're Jewish or Gentiles, we're still believers. And if they're believers and I'm a believer... Shouldn't some of those, shouldn't that also be applied to me as well, regardless of whether I'm a Jew or Gentile? I, I guess for me, I guess, like I said, the verse in Ephesians for me, that kind of click was... Right, Christ. right. And I get that. Okay, so let's take that verse from Ephesians. Let's take that whole idea from Ephesians. Right. And what does it say? It says that believers, whether Jew or Gentile, are made into one new man. Right. What it does not say is Gentiles become Israel. Right. It doesn't say that. It says they become one new man. Now, you've got one new man in Christ. I agree with that group. But there's also national Israel. They still exist. They don't believe. And at the end of Romans 9, Paul identifies them as unbelievers. No, end of Romans 11. Is that what I'm thinking? When he says that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. And he identifies the all Israel he's talking about as, as touching the gospel, they are unbelievers. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So they're unbelieving Israel. Now what about them? They're not us. They're, they're not Gentile believers. They're unbelieving Israel. What about them? Well, we just read out of Hosea, and we can read out of so many other places, where God makes promises to national Israel that he's going to send his son back. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. He's going to establish a kingdom. That's all for national Israel. That's not for me. That's not for you. And so those distinctions exist in the Bible. I'm trying to keep those distinctions distinct. Yes, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, free or bond, male or female. I agree. So my wife and I are both in Christ. Can you tell the difference between us? Sure can. Sure can, because there's still distinction, right? 
even though we're all one in Christ, there's still distinction. You don't stop being a Jew when you come to Christ. You don't stop being a Gentile when you come to Christ. But as far as who can come to Christ, there's no distinction. Male, female, free, bond, you know, Jew, Gentile, any of them can come to Christ, but they retain the distinction. Okay, that's the one new man group. That's the bride of Christ group. But what about this nation of Israel that still has all these unsatisfied, unfulfilled promises? Is God going to drop them like a hot potato? Or is he actually going to do the things he said he was going to do with them? I contend that because he doesn't change, he's still going to do it. And when you get to the New Testament, when Peter is writing to Jewish believers specifically, and he's identified Jewish believers specifically, he brings out those promises that are made to Jews specifically. And you don't find that language anywhere when Paul is writing to Gentiles. He never yanks out the language of, oh, here's some Old Testament promises to national Israel that are now fulfilled in you. You don't find that anywhere. So I still see and want to maintain those distinctions or else at some point you have to say that God was unfaithful to some group of people, and I'm not willing to go there. Um, I was wondering two things. I was looking at Romans 11, where you were talking about, and I was wondering, well, the first one is I read, I asked then, have they stumbled so far as to fall, talking about Israel? He says, absolutely not. On the contrary, by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles with Israel jealous. Now, think about that for just a moment, because that's really, really important to this discussion. We just talked about he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then Paul writes, have they stumbled so that they completely fall? And he says, no, God forbid. That's not what happened. Their stumbling was so that God would bring in the Gentiles by grace to make Israel jealous so that he could bring Israel back. That's the divine plan of God. And if you don't see the Jew-Gentile distinction, you don't get that whole argument. There have to be the Jews and the Gentiles in order for Paul's argument to work. So yeah. later on, he talks about um, like how we shouldn't brag because we were grafted in. We were the wild branches yeah. grafted in. But what he says is... Um, Don't boast against the natural branches. Right, but he says, you were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. And so... When he says the rich root, is he talking about the promises? Like, do you get to share the promises? I believe he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. That's the root of the whole thing. So it's not the promises that we get to share in, though? We get to share in you're saved by grace through faith. Mm -hmm. That your faith as a Gentile is sufficient for you to get righteousness before God. I mean, these are the things that were promised all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. And so you get to share in all that, which, by the way, is I'm not just making this up. That was Paul's argument building up to that point in Romans 11. We just don't share in the lamb promises, I guess. Right, because those promises weren't made to us. But the land promises were made to the Israelites. If you don't keep the Israelites distinct, how do those land promises get satisfied? Unless you allegorize or spiritualize them in some way. I say that God spoke specifically of a land. He gave it boundaries. He named it by its rivers. And that's the promise that's given to Israel. So that has to come true to Israel. So therefore, there has to be an Israel. Yes? Land promises were made to Abraham as well. Before yeah. Before Israel too, right? Yeah. 
Everywhere you walk, everywhere you see, this land is yours in perpetuity, and there were no conditions placed on it. But it's going to be given to who? You and your descendants. And so it's very specific. It's the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people who are called Israel. That's who gets the land. Yes? There's a distinction, too, in the... You see what you started, Devante? <laughs> Possibly in the day of the Lord and the rapture. You know, we don't take place in the day of the Lord because we're taken away. Is that another distinction, possibly, between us and national Israel? Yes, because the day of the Lord is very specifically the time of Jacob's trouble. Right. But the church isn't appointed to wrath. So we're going to be taken out before the time of Jacob's trouble. And if there isn't a distinction between the church, which is taken out, and Jacob that goes through the trouble, if you erase those distinctions, how do you make sense of those prophecies and, and those explanations that you find in the Old and New Testament? Uh, the distinctions, as you are all proving, the distinctions keep showing up. So those verses have to mean our our. One man in Christ, as far as no distinction, but it can't mean that there's truly no distinction. Right, yeah. right. There is one man in Christ because that's the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, Jew or Gentile. That's the bride of Christ. But there is also national Israel, and national Israel still has to deal with things like the time of Jacob's trouble and like the establishment of the kingdom and all of that. And a new place to live permanently called New Jerusalem that we also get to participate right. in by grace. Well, uh, no Jew or Gentile or male or female. I mean, we don't want to go so extreme as to say, oh, yeah, because there's no difference between male or female. Exactly. I mean, yeah. How do you tell Janine and I apart? It's so difficult. <laughs> Pretty soon you're going to think she's the bald one. <laughs> Anything else? Now, Devante, really good questions. I'm really glad you brought it up because I'm sure that there were people out there thinking the exact same thing. And I'm he was. I'm really glad that you brought it up and gave us the opportunity to clarify it. I hope that it did clarify some things. But if you have questions, I'm always available. Ask me questions. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with that too, Devante, for a very long time. And what really helped me understand it was understand our role in it, in that we are adopted, and that we are grafted. We're just here to make them. Yeah, yeah, we're just here to make them jealous. jealous. But it was always their promise. So that's that's what really helped me was the idea that they have the history and the promise and everything, and we don't. We've just been adopted into it. But I, I I've had that trouble too. That's a big it's a big concept. Where were you 15 minutes ago? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm up here flailing away. You could have just said that. That would have helped. Anything else? All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation and then go get yourself a piece of cake. Everybody yell cake. Cake. Yeah. Come to GCA. Get cake. That's the deal. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.